Welcome to episode 24 of History of the Marine Corps, the end of the Wheeling Expedition. During our last episode, we covered the losses of multiple ships, two of which include the Raleigh and the Alfred. We also briefly discussed the state of the Wheeling Expedition, where James Wheeling and a group of Marines would head to the southern states with the purpose of raiding the property of British loyalists. This week, we'll dig a little deeper into the Wheeling Expedition and discuss some of the hardships and challenges Wheeling and the Marines are facing with the Spanish and the British. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Captain Willing and a group of Marines on board the Rattletrap continued with their mission down the Ohio River. As they marched towards their destination, men would volunteer for Willing's expedition and the size of the detachment would grow relatively quickly. They stopped British messengers en route, confiscated supplies headed towards British forces, and confronted British loyalists throughout their journey. When Willing began his expedition, he had 26 Marines. But when he reached the mouth of the Arkansas River, his strength was over a hundred men. On February 19th, they arrived at the plantation of Anthony P. Hutchins, a British Army officer during the French and Indian War, and one of the first settlers in the newly created Mississippi Territory. Willing considered Anthony Hutchins and William McIntosh the leading Tories in the area, so he ordered their property, slaves, and all valuables confiscated. During the raid, Hutchins was taken prisoner, but he managed to free himself and immediately returned to Natchez to warn the citizens of Willing's plans to plunder other plantations owned by British loyalists. Natchez was a mix of settlers from America, Britain, and France, and was largely under British control. There were some who supported American independence, but many still supported British rule. Hutchins' warning provided the town an opportunity to prepare for the advancing Americans, the plan was to split the Marines into two canoes and paddle to shore the same day. One British loyalist described Willing and the Marines as, quote, dressed in hunter's frocks and armed to take all the inhabitants and properties. The town thought it was best to cooperate with the Americans. However, locals made it pretty clear that their passiveness didn't mean they would provide help. Willing somewhat agreed to this proposal. He guaranteed property wouldn't be seized but commanded food and necessary supplies provided to his men. He also demanded that all single men join his raiding party and help them with their mission. Willing's guarantee only applied to the town of Natchez. The district to the south was fair game, and Willing and the Marines advanced on the southern residents relentlessly. Crops of British loyalists were destroyed, houses burned to the ground, and livestock was either taken as food or killed. The awkwardness of the situation was this was Willing's home. He knew many of the local citizens, some of which were his friends. William Dunbar, who was a childhood friend of Willing, documented the raids, and from his perspective thought Willing's actions weren't about patriotism nor essential to the cause, but more about acquiring riches for his own fortune. I can see Dunbar's point. Having a childhood friend show up and destroy and confiscate property must have been pretty confusing. But for the most part, 
Those who declared themselves neutral or American sympathizers were untouched by the raids. Willing's motives seemed to align with his original mission from Congress, and whatever his reasons were, Willing's expedition unquestionably worked. The raid sent a clear message to the British, and it forced them to consider future engagements with Willing and the Marines. On February 23rd, Willing sent 18 Marines, led by Lieutenant McIntyre and Lieutenant Harrison, to capture a British sloop. The ship was the Rebecca, and it was originally sent to slow down the expedition. The Marines confiscated the ship and sailed her back to New Orleans where she was renamed the Morris. Shortly after her capture, 26 French and Spanish sailors were ordered to join Willing and continue to seize and destroy British Loyalist property. However, instead of heading to Willing's position, they made a detour and marched towards the 18 Marines who captured the Rebecca. They reached Lieutenant McIntyre and Harrison just in time to spot another British vessel, the Neptune. The Marines asked the French and Spanish crew to help attack the newly spotted ship. Two men refused to help and left the party, but the remaining 24 helped with the attack and captured the prize which was filled with lumber. According to the British crew, the Americans stormed the ship, armed with cutlasses, and wore cockades and deer tails in their hats. The Neptune was sent to New Orleans as well, where it was held into auction. The British started to stress about the Marines' success through their expedition. This wasn't anticipated, and tough to defend. During episode 20, The French Pick an Alliance, we discussed Robert Morris's thoughts on how the British were spread too thin, and the American strategy to exploit that weakness. Willing's expedition threw a wrench in British strategy, and now they had to develop a plan for defending British settlements against the Marines. British loyalists in the South were terrified, and they started to flee for neutral lands owned by the Spanish. Houses and plantations were abandoned, and livestock and slaves were transported out of British territory. Britain could no longer rely on some of their territories for support, and deploying troops to these locations would further thin out British forces. Spain was neutral in this engagement, and welcomed British loyalists into their settlements. Their neutrality also meant they welcomed Willing and the Marines into their land as well. The Spanish gave the Marines one of their public buildings to use as their barracks, and the Americans were allowed to auction any prizes within their borders. The exact amount of money earned from these auctions is not known, but estimates are around $60,000, which isn't too impressive. Local Tories appreciated the Spanish opening up their land for British refugees, but they were outraged with the decision to give Marines a barracks and allowing them to sell confiscated property. British loyalists sent so many daily petitions to the Spanish governor that he had to appoint a three-man team to review all incoming petitions. For the most part, this team was for show. Governor Galvez wasn't concerned about the petitions initially, but on March 14th, the Sylph sailed into the Mississippi with John Ferguson in command. Ferguson decided the governor's actions were not sufficient and took matters into his own hands. He sent a letter to the governor stating his willingness to house armed men who were the enemies of Britain and allowing them to auction off British property was a clear violation of the Treaty of Peace and the rights of men. Ferguson interpreted these actions as an open declaration of war against British. 
Britain was already at war with America and the French. Accusing the Spanish of an open declaration of war didn't seem like the best way to start a conversation with the Spanish governor. In response to Ferguson's letter, the governor stated, I do not know how you can take my mode of proceeding as a declaration of war, violation of the treaties of peace, law of nations, and rights of men, when at the same time I do not think that I have taken a single step which does not indicate a religious observation of the same rights, which you accuse me of having violated. If I have received the Americans upon the territories which I command, it was out of regard of the same rights of men which you say I do not observe. You are at liberty to put what construction you please upon my way of proceeding. My ideas are certainly no others than to remain neutral in the present war, according to the commands of the king, my master. And should you pretend to commit the least hostility towards the subjects of my sovereign, or anyone under his protection in this colony, you will find me as resolute to repress you by force of arms as I am willing to preserve the friendship and good understanding of the two nations. Spain wasn't under any obligation to protect British subjects on British territory or on British ships. By early April, Ferguson and the Sylph was replaced by another British ship, the Hound, commanded by Joseph Nunn. Nunn continued to fight for the British refugees, and Governor Galvez continued to hold his ground. Galvez understood the risks of the standoff. Even though Spain was neutral, Galvez displayed support for the Americans by providing a barracks and allowing the sale of British property on Spanish territory. He ordered the residents of New Orleans to prepare for an attack. He also required every British and American living in the town to take an oath of neutrality. If they didn't, they would have to leave. With the exception of a handful of British citizens, everyone signed the neutrality agreement. This didn't go over well with other British leaders in the South, and they interpreted this oath as further support for the American cause. Fifty British soldiers were sent to Manchac and on April 19th attacked an American unit, killing three, injuring eight to ten, and taking fourteen as prisoner. Willing immediately sent a group of Marines to take back Manchac. The Marines were led by Lieutenant Reuben Harrison. When they arrived, the British retreated to the nearby forest. With absolutely no resistance, the Marines hoisted the American colors over Fort Butte and targeted another British loyalist, Colonel Anthony Hutchins. He was a Natchez and even though he had taken the oath of neutrality, was blatantly breaking it. Hutchins learned that Harrison and the Marines were on their way. As he rushed home, he provoked the locals by claiming a detachment was coming and they were planning to raid everyone's property. The local residents were panicked, and they responded by taking up arms and fortifying the town. Defenses were raised at White Cliffs, and the town prepared to fight. Lieutenant Harrison was notified of the town's plans, and he sent John Talley to speak to the town and ensure them that no one's property would be raided. Hutchinson also emphasized the purpose of their visit wasn't hostile. As Harrison approached, he started to cross the river into Natchez, but he discovered that he was walking right into a trap. Both sides claimed the other side made the first shot, so it's unclear who initiated the battle. However, the Americans were in an open area and had a smaller force, so they took the brunt of the attack. At the end of the battle, five men were killed, multiple were captured, 
leaving only a handful to return to New Orleans with Lieutenant Harrison. Willing and his remaining men in New Orleans were frustrated by the locals at Natchez and the British's progress in taking control of the Mississippi. Manchek now had a British force comprised of 40 regulars, 60 rangers, and a small party of refugees. The river was guarded by the Sylph and her crew of 150 men, and now the Natchez had around 200 men defending the city. Any communication and supplies to Willing and his men were effectively cut off, and they were forced to stay in New Orleans for months. This was aggravating for Willing, and he said although it was an unfortunate circumstance, it gave him the opportunity of knowing his friends from his enemies. As the days dragged on, and with the Americans trapped in New Orleans, the governor started to lose patience. After a couple of questionable decisions by Willing, the Spanish governor started to get the feeling that he lacked judgment. He also thought that Willing was taking advantage of the hospitality that was extended to him by the Spanish. Willing tried to apologize and stated that his actions were unintentional, but the more time passed, the more the governor was uncomfortable with the Americans in town. Oliver Pollock, the continental agent in New Orleans, shared the same feeling as Galvez, but the relationship between Pollock and Willing seemed much more aggressive. Willing wrote a letter to Pollock, criticizing him for his poor administration of finances for the expedition. His letter also emphasized that these actions were causing his men to desert. The remaining force at New Orleans dwindled down to a smaller, 35-man Marine detachment. All other volunteers left Willing since the promise of riches were no longer the case. Pollock responded to Willing's letter, blaming him for these issues. He concluded with the suggestion to, quote, Be more cautious whom you touch as somehow or other the enemy is acquainted with your proceedings." Unquote. As more time passed, Pollock sent multiple reports to Congress, requesting Willing out of New Orleans. In a letter sent on July 6th, Pollock stated, The small party you sent here under the command of Captain James Willing, without any order or subordination, has only thrown the whole river into confusion and created a number of enemies, and a heavy expense which would not have happened had they been otherwise governed and a proper number sent. However, the only remedy for what has passed is a speedy dispatch. Pollock tried multiple times to get Willing out of New Orleans. He pleaded with Congress, stated he was going to cut off supplies so they were forced to leave, and attempted to route the Americans through the Mississippi and out to sea. Unfortunately, nothing worked, but it wasn't because Willing wanted to stay. The British surrounded the town and cut off pathways by water. On June 16th, Pollock asked the governor for permission to ready the Morris for the purpose of transporting Willing and his crew home. Galvez approved Pollock's request, but it would take a while for the vessel to be properly outfitted for the voyage. On July 14th, Willing made his first attempt to leave New Orleans, but it turned out to be too dangerous and he had to abandon the trip. They tried again a month later, but this time the expedition was led by Lieutenant Robert George. This time he was routed through Opelousas, Natchitoche, and the Arkansas. Galvez authorized this route only after George, Harrison, and their Marines agreed to follow the route directly and not offend or bother anyone along their journey. This included British settlers. 
It took the Marines another 10 months, but they would finally reach their destination at Kaskaskia. Once there, Marines were disbanded. A few of them followed Robert George, now a captain, to his artillery company, and many went back home. Back in New Orleans, Willing finally left, and he headed towards Philadelphia in November. On his way back, they encountered the Columbus off the Delaware Capes. Willing was taken prisoner, and he was held until 1779. As 1778 came to a close, the Eastern Navy Board addressed the six ships still docked in Boston. The frigates in port were the Alliance, Dean, Queen of France, Warren, Providence, and the Boston. All ships were having a hard time finding Marines and sailors for service. The board sent a letter to Congress stating, Every ship here might sail in 14 days if they could be manned. It is not easy to describe to you the difficulties we are under on this account, and the losses the continent sustains by the conduct of the privateers who are always seducing by every art the men from the public service after they have received the bounty and clothing. During episode 17, The Marine You've Never Heard Of and The Americans Surrender Their First Ship, we briefly covered privateering. Many men would flock to the privateer service due to the abundant bounties, less stringent restrictions, and overall better quality of life. Privateering was an attractive alternative to military service and the Continental Navy and Marines were losing men over it. The board suggested a prohibition on privateering until all ships were manned. Some ships were in better shape than others. Commander of the Dean, Captain Samuel Nicholson, not to be confused with Marine Captain Samuel Nicholas, was fully stocked and prepared for battle. She had all of her wood, water, and supplies ready, and a crew of 200 men, The Queen of France was almost in good shape and had most of her supplies and 136 men on board. The only major constructed needed was her gun carriages. The Alliance was in similar shape and had 180 men on board. The Warren was being repaired, but she didn't have any men, and the Providence was being fitted for a new foremast with a crew of 11. The Boston only had a few men on board. Marine officers from each of the ships began the recruiting mission and scoured the area for men. One of these Marines was Captain Elihu Trowbridge. He was the captain of Marines on board the Warren, and he was given 390 pounds to recruit Marines for service. After a few weeks, recruits started to come into town who were promised pay and reimbursements for their travels by Trowbridge, but the captain never showed up. The board reported that Trowbridge deserted with the money. However, Trowbridge showed up in Philadelphia on February 8th, and he asked Congress for more funds to help with recruiting. The Navy board gave Trowbridge another 200 pounds, but Trowbridge disappeared again. In January 1779, the Navy board cut their losses with Trowbridge, and they replaced him with Captain Richard Palms. Fortunately, Palms was more dependable and he used the funds to take out ads in the local newspaper. He also marched up and down town with a drum and fife. The ad in the newspaper stated, The Continental Frigate Warren will sail on a cruise in six days from the above date. All that are willing to enter as Marines, seamen, or landsmen are desired to repair on board. All Marines that were formerly under my command will be preferred. 
Despite efforts from the naval and marine officers, the fleet would encounter the same problems, and recruiting was ineffective. In a month, the Warren and Boston only had 70 men each, and the Providence had 30. Palms had more work to do, but while he was trying to figure out how to increase recruitment numbers, the Dean and the Alliance set sail for Boston, both headed towards different directions. The Alliance was headed towards France, and the Dean sailed south, where she would soon capture the Viper. The Dean would also capture and burn another ship leaving New York that was filled with brandy, wine, and fruit. For four months, the Dean sailed along the coast. She would eventually arrive in Martinique, where she delivered letters from Congress. On her way back to Philadelphia, the Dean carried messages to Congress from Martinique. They encountered some bad weather, and Nicholson wasn't able to sail the Dean into the Delaware Capes. He sent a small packet boat with a few men, one of which was Marine Captain John Elliott. While the packet boat was headed to shore, Elliott was covered with the sail while he slept, rolled overboard, and drowned. Queen of France and the three vessels continued to recruit together until they had a full staff on March 13th. The orders to all three captains of the ship were the same. Seek out and destroy small armed vessels. The weather for the first month was rough, and the crew spent most of their time battling strong winds and furious seas. As they approached warmer waters, the weather calmed down, and marines were brought on deck to practice firing cannons and muskets at selected targets. It was a good thing they did. On April 6th, they ran into their first prize and captured the ship with ease. The next day, two fleets were spotted, and the Warren gave chase. By 1400, the Warren had captured seven enemy vessels. The ships were transport vessels and didn't have British troops on board. They did, however, contain a plethora of supplies and dry goods from a British Dragoon regiment. With a successful trip, the ships were ordered back to Boston. A thick fog caused the fleet to separate but this would only cause a delay in their arrival. Hopkins sent Captain Palms to the Navy Board so he could brief them on the news and their success. The Navy Board was ecstatic to hear the replacement for Trowbridge was so successful. They were also happy about the seven ships captured by the Warren. Americans had a good thing going, and Congress didn't want it ruined by men deserting as soon as they docked. As an attempt to stop men from deserting, the board ordered Palms back to the ship with orders to Hopkins to stay in the bay. The men on board the ship started to protest this decision. They argued that they signed up for a cruise and the cruise was over. They wanted their prize money and they wanted off the ship. Hopkins appeared in front of the board the next day to brief them on the situation. He explained that he could not convince his crew to sail anywhere until they received their prize money. Without much of an option, the Warren sailed into port and as the board predicted, all men were gone in less than a week. The Warren would find herself in the same position as before, unstaffed and not much use. The board realized that the Queen of France would succumb to the same fate and wanted to stop that from happening a second time. They quickly sent a letter to the captain and asked him to keep his men on board. Instead of coming on shore, they suggested the commander submit a list of needed supplies. The order was ignored, and Captain Olney let his men go on shore. 
The Queen of France succumbed to the same fate as the Warren, and her crew deserted within days. Desertion was a big issue, and extremely costly to the United States, so the board started digging into this behavior. They discovered the two captains intimidated and threatened their crew into being designated as prize agents. This meant that they would receive a captain's share of the prize, and also a commission on every man on board. This was highly unethical, and on the line of illegal. The board sent their findings to the Marine Committee, where the two naval captains were suspended and ordered before a court-martial. They assigned John Peck Rathbun to the Queen of France and Dudley Saltonstall to the Warren. Unfortunately, Marine Captain Richard Palms was impacted by Hopkins' decision as well. Three days after the Warren arrived, Hopkins ordered Palms to Philadelphia with the letter to Congress. This went against the Navy Board's orders, and Palms was suspended because, quote, he left his duty at a critical time without the leave and against the judgment of Mr. William Vernon. Palms would be replaced by Captain John Welsh. Next week, the Marines will go on another expedition. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we discuss the adventures of Marines on a few frigates, as well as another expedition by the Marines. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.